we're continuing through our Reclaim series. And this series, it basically is looking through the first few chapters of Revelation, and we're listening in on what Jesus had to share with the seven churches at that time. You see, there were blind spots that these seven churches, they really felt like they were living the Christian life. They really felt like they were following God and making Him proud. But they had blind spots that Jesus wants to point out and helping them to reclaim. Because if they didn't, Jesus knew what would happen and it was already happening. Their faith was growing cold. Their faith started to leak joy, started to leak life out of it. It was just a habit that they were forming. All of them, they were doing their best to resist the obvious pressures, the obvious temptations that they were facing. But the surprising revelation that Jesus presents to each church was how those very efforts were unintentionally blinding them making them feel secure so that Satan could work slowly behind the scenes, slowly in their blind spots that would actually suffocate their faith. So these messages are really important for us to hear today because we can actually learn from the oversight of these seven churches. Sometimes, you know, in our life, we see these obvious issues and we try to tackle these obvious issues in our life and we mistakenly forget about the greater picture, about other aspects of our, of our following of Jesus Christ, of our discipleship. We begin to neglect that or we begin to forget about that because we become so confident in a certain way that we are living our Christian life that sometimes this joy we begin to miss. To give you an example, and I know I'm being very controversial here, but to give you an example of this is there are some times where Christians, we stand for something as important as, we'll just say, marriage. And we begin to fight for marriage. And it's good that we must fight for marriage, the biblical definition of marriage. But there are times where we become so overly obsessed of defending that one thing that we begin to forget about other aspects of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ that as we neglect those other areas even though we're fighting the good fight in one area these other areas are actually making our faith dull it's taking the life out of our faith it's the same thing that we find with issues like abortion we, we fight for it so hard, and we should, because life is important. And these, this is the kind of life that God has given us. But same time, if we overly focus on it, and, and we make that the main thing, what we don't realize is certain blind spots begin to happen in our life, and it begins to sap away the vitality that we are meant to have in our relationship with Jesus Christ. And I want to make sure that I'm not being misunderstood here. I'm not downplaying the biblical definition of marriage. I advocate that. 
I'm not downplaying the importance of life. These are absolutely important. But what we can see happen, just as we saw happening with these seven churches, is they start fighting these battles. But at some point, they made those battles their main thing. They forgot that following Jesus, who Jesus is, is our main thing. They forgot about that. They're doing all of these things for Jesus, all of these things for God. But we forget why we're doing it. I think the easiest illustration that we see, and Jesus knew even before this letter to the seven churches through a revelation that God gave through John, Jesus knew this tendency that we all have. Remember that story that comes from Luke chapter 15 about the two, um, the two brothers or the two sons? In this story, Jesus highlights what could happen to our faith, just like when he's talking about the Pharisees, saying we can become like the older brother. We feel like we're doing the right thing. We kind of look down on other people who are rebellious or who are not doing the right thing, like the younger brother who wishes his father dead so that he can have his inheritance now and then end up using the money any way that he chooses. And so this older brother's mindset is like, well, at least I'm not doing that. At least I'm not like that. And I'm doing what is proper in the eyes of society, in the eyes of my responsibility to my, to my father and their family. I'm going to stay put. I'm going to do these kind of things. And so even though the older brother was doing what was right, Jesus points out that something begins to fade from the older brother. We see the fruit of that happen because even though he was living right, he didn't say the bad things that the younger brother says. At the end of the story where the father shows if our heart's in the right place and if we're really following Jesus Christ, that at the end of the story when that younger brother returns, when that prodigal son returns, just like the father's heart, if we're in the right place, there should be celebration. Right? There should be an overwhelming joy that you have returned despite all the bad that you have done because there's something in that that Jesus is pointing out, saying this is the heart of the Father. But what do we see happening to the older brother? He gets angry. He feels like I'm not compensated for the hard work that I'm doing. In fact, this is what he says. Instead of doing any celebration, he thinks his younger brother shouldn't. He thinks his younger brother should be a slave, should pay back, should be punished. And then what he says to his father is, you never gave me even a goat to celebrate with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back, you throw a celebration. You know, something happened to his faith. It became lifeless. It was sapped of joy. He remained in his father's household. But it's clearly not what the father intended for the older son. In that same kind of vein, we look at the younger son. Can you imagine with me what the younger son must have felt? When the younger son knows he messed up. The younger son knows he screwed up. And then as he's returning, he's rehearsing in his own head 
What am I going to say to my father? I'm going to say, I did wrong. I repent. I'm so sorry. I don't deserve. And he really means it. I don't deserve it. And his decision is, as long as I can just be in the vicinity of my father's household again, he's come to the place where he's saying, I'm willing just to be a servant. I just want to be a slave, right? Because it's better to be a slave in my father's household than continue my life outside of it. And he's rehearsed. He's willing to say that. Can you imagine what the younger son must have felt as he's about to fully give his repentance to the father? He's on his knees and he's ready to say, just make me like one of your servants. To his absolute surprise, the father takes off his cloak, puts it around the younger son. And in that embrace, Let's the younger son know you're back. Can you imagine the joy that comes out of that? The, the euphoria, this, what's, what's happening? Oh my goodness, I don't deserve, what is happening? That joy, that euphoria, that moment that surpasses time, that, that makes that moment a moment where nothing else becomes more important than being embraced by the Father. It puts everything else in perspective. He recognizes again who his dad is. That moment is what's missing for the older brother. That moment is the potential that can go missing for the seven churches. And this is why Jesus begins to let people know, be careful of your deeds. He says, I see them. You're doing great, and I know why you're doing it. You're coming from the right heart. But he says, that's not the central focus of your faith, is not your deeds to fulfill certain laws. He says, there's something that's more important. And it's this revelation, this apocalypse. This is why our series is called Reclaim. We're called to reclaim that in our faith again. You see, when we seek after God, God doesn't want us to be more and more obedient for the sake of being obedient. He wants that obedience to come out of this euphoric experience of God that he gives us, that surpasses our time, our past, present, future, and puts everything in perspective. It's it's like the younger son in that moment of forgiveness where you seek God and you just feel God's presence around you forgiving you. And it changes everything. Nothing becomes more important. It's like that moment when you're seeking direction in your life and you're so lost and you're so confused, but suddenly God's presence just comes. And in that revelation, you just feel like even though you may not still know which school to go to or some place that you, a uh, decision that you make, you just know God is with you and it changes your whole perspective. Sometimes it comes in the area of support that suddenly you're going through a hard time and you're looking for some sort of support and God provides it and you know that person that came to your house, you know that prayer that came for you, you know God was listening and he gave that and it puts you in a new space. Maybe it comes in the form of strength where you're completely drained. You're dried out. And suddenly God's presence comes and he strengthens you. 
It comes through patience. It comes through new understanding when you're opening up your Bible and suddenly it just comes alive to you. You've read that passage a hundred times, but this time it comes alive and you're like, oh my goodness, this is what this means. See, when it comes, when, when this experience comes, there's nothing greater than that moment. And it seems that it puts everything else, all your other values, all your priorities, it puts everything in its proper perspective. In Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 to 19, I'll be reading from the NIV. Uh, you can follow along. It reads this. So Revelation chapter 2, verse eight, uh, 18 to uh, 29. I'll be reading it uh, to, uh, for us. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery in her suffering uh, with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am the one, I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold onto what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations that one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my Father. I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father, today's message is a strong one. Sometimes a little bit difficult for us to hear. Just because of its intensity. But rather than shying away, rather than allowing any feelings of offense to prevent us, Father Lord, from listening deeply, will your spirit come? And as you say, for those who have ears, may we hear. May you give us a listening spirit. Will you help us? To see, Father Lord, that what you share with us isn't for the sake of tearing us down, but for the sake 
of building us up, as you say, that you might have life and have it to the full. Will you bless us this morning? Thank you, Father. We commit this space into your hands. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So in the moment that you guys had together, talking about these joy-filled experiences, when you are reminded again of those euphoric moments of your encounter with Jesus that changes everything. In that same way, Jesus wants us to continually have those moments, have that seeking after Jesus and allowing Jesus to reveal these new things, to turn our hearts that have hardened into hearts that are joy-filled and filled with life and anticipation. But Jesus also knows there are certain things, certain habits, certain ways that creep into our lives and the way that we live out our faith that can quickly extinguish that kind of experience where we become more used to just following laws, following rules, following ways, and without knowing as we do this and we think that we're doing what is good, our faith vitality disappears. Where it becomes more about our effort and our own personal goodness of following Jesus rather than the faith vitality that Jesus brings into our life. And in this message to the church in Thyatira, what Jesus highlights and the revelation that Jesus brings to, these, uh, to this place, he's saying there is one thing that you guys are going through that has the potential of sapping that life from you, and it's tolerating compromise. See, I'm not sure if you guys heard this term before. Maybe you've used it. Maybe you've heard other people use it when it comes to faith or our relationship with Christ. People, some people I've heard say this. Hey, I believe in Jesus and I follow him, but let's be realistic. I really don't like that term. Let's be realistic, right? They say this. They follow up with this. Some things just don't work that way in the real world. You know, when I hear people say, say that, I hear this. What they, what they understand, what the real world is like, is they're compartmentalizing. The religious world is this, and in my religious compartmentalization, this can be true, but not in business. Business is business. Politics is politics. You know, sometimes the people's mindset that they have is that Jesus has no place in business. Jesus has no power in politics. It is what it is. So for us to believe that faith makes a difference or faith has relevance in those areas, people say that doesn't make sense. We compartmentalize faith into the religious realm. The assumption is that Jesus is confined to religion and he has no place in the real world. You know, one of the things that we... No, that we didn't know too much about the city of Thyatira. But one of the very few things that we know is that Thyatira was famous for trade guilds. In today's language, that's like unions, right? So there's all these different types of trades that were in Thyatira. And Thyatira was known as a place where they created a union for everything, right? And so there's these unions for 
everything for wool workers, for linen workers, for makers of our garments, for dyers, for leather workers, tanners, potters, bakers, slave dealers, bronzesmiths, shoemakers, and it goes on and on. Every one of these professions had its own union. And as you guys know how unions function today, when you have a certain union, everyone has to agree upon certain standards. They would say, well, no, all of us, we're going to agree on this, so we're all moving forward in this area. And if you try to dissent, if you try to do things differently, or you have a different idea, you are not just frowned upon by your own union, but you are at risk of losing the benefits that that union provides for you. You see, it was the same thing for the church of Thyatira. The people um, that were there, they were part of these unions. And these unions helped them in life. But the problem with these unions is they had certain practices that they were expected that if you're a part of our union, you do the same thing. And you'll notice what they talk about, sexual immorality and eating food that's sacrificed to idols. What, what they were doing is they're saying, as a union or as a you know, as a group of people that gathered together, we're all going to do this together. And if you didn't show up, that would mean the possibility of losing your job because they would ax you. They would say, no one goes to that tanner anymore. No one goes to that linen worker anymore. It was a very demanding space. We experience that today in our current work environments as well. Right? So sometimes after work, you're expected, you have to go drinking with people. And if you don't go drinking, the unwritten rules that certain businesses have because they are your supervisors or they're your direct directors who have the power of promoting you or who have the power of holding you back, they don't see you at these socialization events that you know are questionable, that you know is filled with compromise of what you believe to be true. And if you don't show up, even though it's not in the manual, it's nowhere written in their HR stuff, you know you won't get promoted. Someone else will because you are not falling in line. This is what was happening in this place. Look at verse 20. It says that Jesus says to the people of the church of Thyatira, you're doing all things well, but you are tolerating the woman Jezebel in your community. Now Jezebel, she was known in the Old Testament as this queen that intermarried, that basically married in into Israel to bring peace between um, the king of Tyre and Sidon. So for these, uh, for that people group, they intermarried. They had these kind of joint weddings where they'd send their queen or their uh, daughter over and they would marry together so that there would be peace between the nations. So she came from a different nation. And this Queen Jezebel, she, she was committed to the worship of Baal. And Baal was the god of nature or the god of fertility for their people group. And so through this political marriage, as she became now queen of Israel by marrying King Ahab, she quickly exerted her authority by raising up 850 Baal prophets. In other words, she's reestablishing a culture for the people of Israel. And she's saying, you better follow this. 
And if you don't follow it, something might happen to you. In fact, she was so severe that any prophet that would speak against her, she would kill. Jezebel's public kind of um, announcement to the rest of the people to have her have them follow her was basically this. She was basically trying to convince people to compromise. She's saying it's okay to worship Baal alongside worshiping Yahweh. In other words, she wasn't trying to dismiss, even though she didn't believe in Yahweh, she knew that the quickest way to kind of get in into or weasel her way and into changing the people's hearts and to take the vitality of faith out of them was to make them compromise. So she basically was saying, you can worship these two gods. It's okay. It doesn't matter. But she knew that it mattered because she knew in Israel, in Israel faith, God says, you shall have no other gods before me. She knew this. But she was introducing compromise. She was introducing a cultural habit of tolerating compromise within that community. And this person that was like Jezebel was also in Thyatira. And as, as this person is there, she was just saying, all these trade guilds, they're not evil. They're good. They're just trying to create socialization. They're just trying to help you move on in your, in your vocation, in your certain trade, right? And sometimes they eat together, right? And yes, they might eat at the temple. And sometimes they have these sexual experiences. But don't worry, you can have both. That's what this person within their circles, within the church of Thyatira, was trying to convince them. That they're trying to convince them to tolerate compromise. They're saying, you can be strict with certain rules, right? You can try to follow God the way that you're trying to follow God, but it's okay in the business world. It's okay when it comes to this aspect of your life for you to have these things because you need to survive. See, this is what was being introduced. And this Jesus saying, if we tolerate compromise, it's the quickest way for us to lose the vitality of our faith. You know those moments that sometimes we feel like, I haven't really been experiencing God lately. Or when was the last time that God really gave this like wonderful moment where, you know, when I'm seeking him, he really speaks and he really shows me something new. If we've been missing out on that, perhaps it's because we've allowed that spirit of compromise to come into our life. You know, we need to ask ourselves very difficult questions. One of the questions we need to ask is, who will I follow? Am I going to follow Jesus and what he says or the leaders of these unions? We need to ask ourselves, who will be first in my life? Is it Jesus or the expectations of these unions? Will the success of my business be of primary importance to me than the vitality of my relationship with Jesus Christ? Or what will take precedence in my everyday decisions? Will it be cultural values 
or will it be the Spirit of Jesus? You see, brothers and sisters, once we tolerate the spirit of compromise in our life, we stop allowing Jesus to show us His power, His revelation, His new things in those particular areas that we are convinced that Jesus does not belong. This is why it's, a, it's an endless reinforcement cycle. This is why we feel like as followers of Jesus Christ, Jesus doesn't make sense in my business. Why? Because we never give him a chance. We're never willing to risk. Is Jesus really Lord over my business? But I might lose my job. I might lose my promotion. I might lose more money. I might lose my reputation. And because that pressure is so great, we never even think about the possibility of allowing Jesus to be God and reveal himself in his power, in his way, in those areas because we don't risk obedience. In that same way, what happens in our relationship with God is that we keep pushing him more and more into the area of religion. That yes, Lord, you are the area of my religion. And this is why we desperately seek, when we go to church, we desperately seek these kind of experiences just in that place because we struggle with this compartmentalized life where we're so dry with everything else in our, in our business, in our life, because those things never satisfy the deepest areas of our hearts. That finally, when we go to church, church better have, or maybe I'll say, Eddie better have a non-boring sermon today, right? Because, man, wow, my life there, it's tough. And if I'm giving the space, man, and he better not suck. You know, and sometimes we look at the worship experience, right? We better have a good worship experience today. The, the musicians better have a nice voice and bring me into this euphoric experience. Why? Because that's the only place we've allowed Jesus to be God. And what we're looking for in that kind of realm, in that kind of space, what we're looking for is that giving of life. And when it doesn't deliver, we say, this church sucks. <laughs> Eddie sucks. <laughs> there must be a better pastor out there, right, to make my religious compartment even better. And we fail to realize it's because we compromise. And part of the outworkings of that compromise is we absolutely need the church to deliver my desires. And we forget it's because Jesus is not Lord of our life. You see, Jesus wants you to have those experiences. But the good news is that he doesn't isolate it just in church. He wants you to experience that victory in your very place of work where you have this like crazy moment where you feel like, oh my goodness, 
well, I'm going to get fired, right? Because I know that I didn't do what my boss told me to do. And, oh, man, I'm not going to get that promotion. And then suddenly, as you're trying to be faithful and you're following Jesus, and there's this kind of, like, moment of, like, every risk, every fear that comes into our hearts, that suddenly you are met with the unexpected. You get that promotion. And you have this euphoric moment of, Jesus, you really are God. It can come in relationships too. Where relationships begin to break down and we put that as our primary kind of thing. But we know that it's not right. But we still put it as our primary thing and we pursue it. And we feel like, I can't let go of this because this is the thing that I want and this is what I want to be blessed with. But following Jesus in this relationship, we know, involves a very difficult choice. I might lose this person. I don't know what I'll do without this relationship. And it's those places that as we learn how to allow Jesus to be Lord, over those, li- over those areas of our life, we experience Jesus leading, filling in ways that we never expected. And it changes everything. The reason why we don't experience that so much is because of fear. We compromise. Because we fear losing certain things. That was the spirit Jezebel, putting that fear into the Israelites' heart, saying, you're going to lose out, just letting you know. It's going to mess up your life. God doesn't mind you compromising on these things. It's not a big deal. And God says, yes, it is. Because I'm either Lord and sovereign Lord overall, or I'm not. There is no both end. Following Jesus is an either or. I'm either who I say I am and the Lord over your life, or I'm not. See, this is why Jesus to the church in Thyatira introduces himself. Remember, Jesus to each church was introducing himself in a very particular way, giving each church a very particular vision. Look how he introduces himself to the people here. He says, I am the one who has eyes like blazing fire. That's Kind of freaky language, right? It's like a horror movie almost, right? One with God with eyes of blazing fire. And then he also says, feet of burnished bronze. Why does Jesus introduce himself like that to the people of Thyatira? It's because it is terrifying. The eyes part, it's terrifying. But at the same time, it's comforting. Let me tell you why. It's terrifying because what Jesus is trying to tell the people of Thyatira, he's saying, my eyes, they pierce through every dark, every blind spot, everything hidden. In other words, he says, you can't hide what's really true in your heart from me. He says, I can see it all. It's terrifying because he can see it. We can never pretend. But it's also comforting because his eyes also penetrate for the purpose of not getting information. Oh, I see that sin that you're doing. Oh, 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 I see that. 
Right now, that, that, yeah, I saw that. He doesn't do it for information gathering to make us feel like, oh my goodness, lightning strike, you know, all the time. No, he does it to heal and transform. That's the purpose. The blazing fire is not just a, a eyes that penetrate. It's eyes that as fire does, it refines. It heals. It brings light too. The purpose is healing and transformation, not to information gather to make us feel guilty. His feet of bronze, what they represent, is his, it represents absolute strength. It's immovable. And because it's immovable, basically God has the strength to tread on and be immovable to evil forces or to every other thing that declares itself to be sovereign over Jesus Christ. The securities that we seek in our job, the securities that we seek in our, in our, in our finances, in our relationships, in all these other things. He's saying, no, my feet are bronze. Those things are movable by markets. Those things are movable by, by emotions. Those things are movable by whatever bad spending practices that you have. But I am not movable. I'm guaranteed. You know, although verse 22 to 23 seems really scary, right? Because when we read that, what does it say? It says this. It says, I've given her time to repent of her immorality, uh, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering and I will make those committed uh, who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the, wow, right? Like, oh my goodness, Jesus, calm down, right? Like, it sounds really intense. But this is actually what Jesus is saying through that very strong, real language. His intentions Jesus, that God is trying to point out, he's saying, I'm, I will give you over to your choices. That's what God is saying. He says, unless you repent... He says, you will suffer the consequence of your, in other words, even though you declare me as your God, but your real Lord is compromised. Your real Lord is your submission to all these other things. I, I won't protect you from the consequence. You will go through it. You will suffer through it. That's what he's saying. You see, God allows us to experience the consequences of the choices that we make. This is why Jesus says, I will give each of you according to your deeds. He's not saying on the other side, according to your deeds, I reward you. No, he's just saying in this part, saying according to what you choose or who you choose to be your God, I'll let you go through the, all the results of that. See, these deeds that we have, the reason why Jesus wants us to go through it is because it helps us realize our true allegiance. It opens up our ignorance that even though with our mouths we keep saying, Lord, Lord, right? That God is my Lord. Even though we say that, these kind of consequences, it begins to reveal to us, is God really my Lord? Or am I just saying it with my tongue, but in my heart, I have a different God?
But let's end with it. I know it's so strong right now, so let's end this quickly with promises because I don't, I don't want to destroy you guys or make you feel like, oh my goodness, Eddie, what's with this hellfire, <laughs> right? And all this kind of stuff. It isn't that. It's about healing, right? But look at the promises that Jesus gives. He says this. He says, there are those among you, he says, who are resisting compromise, resisting the spirit of Jezebel in your church. And Jesus says, what does he mean by resisting? Well, he says, the secret to resisting, he says, is holding to what you have. He says this in verse 25. You're resisting by holding to what you have. What does this mean? Well, here, what he means by this, we see it in the very next verse, in verse 26. He says, the holding to what you have is, he says, he who does my will to the very end. Meaning, you know God's word. You trust it, and you trust the person of Jesus Christ. That despite what everyone else says and all these other pressures and all these other influences in your life, as they bring fear into your life, despite what everything does, you're holding to the truth of Jesus Christ because you trust him more than anyone else. That's what he means by saying holding to what you have. You hold to Jesus Christ because you believe him Lord over every aspect of your life. So how do we do this? Well, Jesus says, keep your eyes on me. Remember those eyes of burning fire, <laughs> right? He says, keep your eyes on me. Why? Because when we seek Jesus, the eyes of Jesus in every area of our life, remember those we talked about, the, those euphoric experiences that sometimes come through our life? That's why. He wants our lives to be filled with those moments. Not out of our own like, yeah, 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 God, I got it. These rules, right? We just keep this and that's good. All right, good. I'll go off and I'll try to keep it as best as I can. But sometimes I got to compromise. No, he says every area of our life, even in our business, where's our eyes focused on? Not on what our guilds say or what our trades say or what our emotions say or what our bosses say, but on what Jesus says. Our eyes are on Jesus. Jesus, what do you think? Jesus, where are you in this? What would please you? Our eyes are on Jesus Christ. So that if he provides those moments of lordship, of euphoria, we get to experience it in that area of our life. For those who do this, the promise is twofold. The first promise that he gives is in verse 26 to 27. I will give authority over the nations. In other words, what he's saying is this. Those things that pretend to have authority over you, these relationships, these trade guilds, these finances, these addictions, whatever it might be, he says, they don't have ultimate authority. I will give you authority over those things. They will not control you. In verse 28, he also says, I will also give the morning star. What does he mean by that? The morning star is when at the darkest point of night, around 2 or 3 a.m., the sun begins to appear. Right? This morning star basically is the brightest star that happens that introduces or pulls in the morning. It pulls in the dawn. 
So in other words, what he's saying is at the apex of our darkness, at the apex when things feel like they're really down and it looks like we're going nowhere, he says, I will give you the morning star. In other words, he says, I will give you this hope that draws in your day, that draws in your light, that brings forward that new space. To those of us who are experiencing these dark moments of our life, Jesus says, keep your eyes fixed on me. Hold to me. I'm immovable. And for those that you do, you will have authority over all of these powers that try to convince you that you are under their control. And the second thing is, I will give you hope, a real hope that pulls in the light, even when things are dark in your life. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for blessing us with this morning, with your word. May our hearts and our minds be challenged. May we not live the spirit of compromise, the spirit of Jezebel, and allow the blinding of our faith that we begin to notice, Lord, there's no zest in our life anymore. May we not compromise, Lord. May you break that habit. And I pray, Father, for a fresh revelation that you bring into our life. Thank you, Father. We commit all these things to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.